electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange this hour. Fresh comments from the Fed and fresh concerns out of China. Investors trying to make sense of it, and stocks are trying to end on a positive note but are still down for the week. At the moment, the Dow's up 88, the S&P's up 12, and the Nasdaq is up 42. Apple up about 1% today, but still shedding 5% this week, and about $200 billion in market cap just the last couple of days on those reported iPhone curbs in China, which could be getting broader, and that is where we start today. We have team coverage. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with the very latest for us. Seema Modi is looking at how India is trying to capitalize on China's slowdown and these rising U.S.-China tensions. And Robert Frank has the luxury consumer trade and the companies most impacted by China's weakening economy and that part of the space. Morgan Stanley Senior Portfolio Manager Andrew Slimman is hanging, hanging today with me uh, to talk about where your money is best deployed against this backdrop here, abroad, tactical, specific. We'll do all of it. Uh, Let's start with Eunice, though. Eunice, uh, what's the latest in Beijing tonight? Well, Kelly, the restrictions reportedly not only apply to certain uh, state agencies on a national level, but also at local governments as well. Uh, The Nikkei has been reporting that um, Apple Watches as well as AirPods are on restricted lists um, at state firms as well. And this all comes as uh, Apple rival here, uh, Huawei, had said that it is now taking pre-orders for another new, uh, what it calls um, uh, most powerful uh, model of their um, of their uh, phones. Uh, the company says that the new uh, Pro Plus is uh, has a lot of different features, greater storage and memory than the Mate. 60 Pro, uh, which was launched last week when U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo had come to China. Uh, That phone uh, has been operating at speeds close to 5G. Uh, This one, the company says, has another homegrown highlight, satellite messaging via China's own Beidou uh, uh, satellite system. Now, shares of Huawei suppliers uh, rallied on the news. Uh, Apple suppliers, though, fell. Uh, The uh, company as well as the the government here hasn't really been commenting, although the foreign ministry did have something to say about the U.S. investigation into whether or not Huawei um, or its its suppliers had violated uh, U.S. export controls with this new phone. Uh, The foreign ministry uh, said that uh, this probe is an unreasonable suppression of Chinese companies and that it only strengthens, they say, China's determination for IT breakthroughs. Kelly? So, Eunice, I guess the question now is uh, there have been some notes reacting to this and saying maybe it's more bark than bite. What would your sense from, uh, you know, being there uh, tell you? I mean, is this a lot of theater or is there going to be, um, you know, some more muscle behind China looking to maybe elbow the iPhone out of its market? Well, it's difficult to say, as we uh, spoke about yesterday, uh, because of the economic incentives, as in uh, potential job losses that you could see here, uh, there are uh, reasons why you could believe that there are breaks on what the Chinese government might want to do. At the same time, uh, the uh, leadership here 
uh, President Xi Jinping especially, has shown that uh, national security is really primary uh, to the way that they are uh, running this country. And so uh, that um, potentially could take precedence over the, over the economic incentives in this case as well. Yeah. Well, Eunice, thank you very much. Eunice Yoon following the story. Andrew, I'll turn to you. Um, not a China bear. You are not. So even with everything that's that's happening now, you don't you don't get the sense a little discomfort in the in the stomach. Well, there is <laughs> a little discomfort, but I do think it's maybe the, what you said before, a little bit more theater than anything. Never lose sight of the fact that the Chinese government needs the economy to recover. And it's taken longer than our post-COVID recovery. But they need to keep the economy moving, people moving upwards and to the right. But I'm going to say something controversial. <sighs> what if they can't? We know they need to. But they're, they're, like Eunice said, part of it is a choice, right? They're not doing the knee-jerk, you know, everything possible to throw money at the problem, make it go away. But like analysts like Derek Scissors have been pointing out, these problems are 15 years in the making. Right. Maybe there's just not much they can do, especially on the demographic front. Right. But uh, what you asked me were, were, are they going to do things that would shoot themselves in the foot? And I'm not sure that's happening. Mm -hmm. So this reminds me a little bit more of early in this Trump presidency when there were these same issues and then they dissipated as we moved on to other issues. I, my sense, which is not to say I think that's a real concern. Demographics is, a, is an issue. But never underestimate the consumption desire as you move into the middle class. I think that's a huge demographic commentary that you have to keep in mind. But would you, as, as we talk about kind of the investment angle on this, there you could do something broad with Chinese stocks, which seems maybe the most risky because it's underperformed for a very long time. You could do something tactical. I mean, we always hear, play the Chinese middle class, play the Chinese consumer, play the Chinese. What, what do you think is the right kind of tactical move here? I think it's to play the Chinese consumer. And whether that's in consumption companies in China or that's global consumer companies, I'm still willing to bet on that over time. And I like what J Jim Cramer said last night, let's wait for the data, let's actually see the facts before we overreact. Do you give names or you just, you know? Well, I, th I think the, you know, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but I sure. think these luxury names in Europe, which have sold off recently, are very intriguing because I do believe there is a desire to walk around at that handbag LVMH that says, I've arrived, yes. I've arrived. <laughs> All right, we'll circle back to that in a minute. Uh, stand by because one other trade gaining momentum right now has been India, which is outperforming China handily this year. You can see it there. Uh, President Xi is also skipping the G20 in India this weekend, which could be another tailwind for India, at least. Let's bring in Seema Modi for more. And Seema, that divergence growing even more pronounced in recent weeks. It absolutely is, Kelly. India's Prime Minister Modi is now trying to fully capitalize on China's slowdown, actively meeting with U.S. corporate leaders this year from Silicon Valley to Wall Street, resulting in new partnerships with companies like Google, Micron and General Electric. And it comes on the heels of a key meeting between Modi and NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong. This morning, the chipmaker announcing two new artificial intelligence deals with India's biggest companies, Reliance and Tata. Now, in June, Micron and Applied Materials unveiling plans to expand production in the country. The goal really here is to produce an Indian-made chip. 
And GQG Partners says that's one of the reasons their team has become even more bullish on India, just a tech opportunity with fund flows showing $2 billion allocated into India ETFs, nearly double the amount put into Chinese equities this year. Just now, President Biden met Modi in New Delhi for the G20 summit, with China's President Xi skipping the event. Expect both leaders to really reaffirm the growing U.S.-India relationship on the agenda from what we're hearing, debt forgiveness for smaller emerging markets, congressional approval of General Electric's fighter jet engines and speeding up visa approvals for Indian talent, including engineers and software experts. Kelly. Seema, just just to follow up. For, so for those who would say, well, generationally, India has just not been as productive as China. Is this time different? It's different because now you're starting to see more of these joint ventures and partnerships come together that will help elevate India's infrastructure and uh, you know create more of those opportunities. So when GE announces a deal, when Applied Materials or Nvidia does something similar, that certainly gets the attention of investors because it shows them that India is now being receptive to the opportunity. Yeah, Seema, thank you very much. So many things here, Andrew, when I think about just the S&P 500 broadly. And you say, OK, well, 7.5%, let's say, of sales to China. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to do with that exposure? I mean, in the past, that would be 2x, right? You would say, OK, 7.5% exposure, but maybe you get double the growth you'd get elsewhere. I don't know what to pencil in for that now. And I don't know whether an economy as small as India's or even a Japan, third biggest economy, decent GDP numbers, but whether even that's enough to move the needle for for some of these multinationals. Yeah, you know, you said it right, which is it's always been a productivity issue. Be careful. Money's pouring into India, and I I get that right. But is is that going to improve in the time frame with which investors who have now moved a lot of money in is really going to happen? which is about seven months. (laughs) Seven (laughs) months? That might be too long. 60 days, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, be careful careful of that, which is not a bad commentary on India. It's just I think that that's an issue. And that's why I'm a little less pessimistic on China, which has been a very successful area until recently. And I still think this concept of they've got to have their economy recover will ultimately play out. Ultimately reign supreme. What about the U.S. dollar, which has really surprised people with its strength this year? I think yourself included. Me too. To many people, they think, well, the success of even a market like Japan is just the flip side of its weak currency. That's correct. And I think it creates an opportunity, which is the dollar went straight up for a decade, right? And non-U.S. investments were bad versus the U.S. And then really starting in the summer of 2022, the dollar started to decline until, you know, a couple a month ago. Right. And then we've had this big rally. So is it a beginning of a secular, new secular bull market for mm-hmm. the dollar, which is give up on everything else, stick to the S&P? Or is it just a counter-turn rally. And I would argue this creates an opportunity for some of these global stocks that are outside the U.S. If it weakens again, and the irony is you think it could weaken because of the fiscal situation. So it's sort of like the dollar weakens for bad reasons, but it still benefits corporate America, which just seems sort of paradoxical. You know, what I don't hear many people talking about is we have approved the infrastructure Act, we've approved the CHIPS Act, and we've improved the, uh, approved the Inflation Reduction Act. How much of that money has actually been spent yet? Exactly. It's all coming. Yes. It's all coming. No, and it's very supportive right now. That's one of the main reasons, I think, for the economy's strength. All right, so some of the world's biggest luxury stocks have been taking a beating over the last couple of months on these fears about what's going on in China. But let's get some details from Robert Frank. Robert, where do we stand? 
Well, Kelly, you and Andrew were just talking about the key point, which is where is the Chinese consumer in all this? Luxury stocks saying not in a very good place. Those stocks losing over $150 billion in market cap just over the past six months, dragging down a lot of those European stock indexes. LVMH alone has lost over $100 billion in value since its peak last April. That is no longer Europe's most valuable company. That title now held by Novo Nordisk, of course, the maker of weight loss drugs. You look at Kering, which owns Gucci, down over 20%, along with Richemont, Hermes, and Montclair. The main reason is China. They, they account for about 20% of global luxury sales. China's slowing economy, the property crisis, youth unemployment, falling consumer demand, all that expected to hit the affluent and aspirational consumers. HSBC saying in a research note that, quote, sales in mainland China are bound to decelerate quite visibly. Now, luxury companies had hoped that the wealthy Chinese would be immune to all this, but many of them are actually leaving the country. A new study projects that over 13,500 millionaires will emigrate from China just this year. That's up over 25 percent from last year. Where are they all going? Well, most going to Singapore, Canada, and the U.S. Kelly, we should be clear that we haven't heard from the companies themselves over the past month about China. In the second quarter, they all had strong China results. Hmm. So this is just investors projecting on the economic data that we've seen that luxury sales will also be hurt. But we haven't heard that from the companies yet. That's a great point. So, Andrew, I turn to you for the kind of yeah, but in the face of a lot of this doom and gloom about that sector. Well, uh, you, there was a piece you ran earlier today saying that the average membership of a Singapore golf club has gone, or the dues has gone from 200 to 600,000 because, wow. because the member, because of the Chinese have moved to Singapore. So maybe they don't buy their Louis Vuitton bags in China, but they're <laughs> buying them in Singapore. What Robert Frank said, which is actually right, the, the companies have actually not said the business is weak in China. What they did say is that they see a slowing in the U.S., mm-hmm. Right. And so that's where the weakness is. But I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that dollar has appreciated recently. So these investments in dollars right, have really been attractive. Exactly. But you're still pretty bullish on a couple of luxury names here. Which ones in particular? Well, I high? look at Louis Vuitton. It's this multiple's gone from kind of a high 20s down to 20 times. Wow. And I would argue, and you know this, Kelly, the <laughs> death of the luxury consumer is greatly <laughs> exaggerated. And I think Ferrari is a very intriguing. Can you imagine if your business? That's been one you, of the great performers, by if, the way. If, if I said to you, it doesn't matter what you charge your clients, they'll buy. Mm-hmm. What did they Compl- always say? Was it them or Porsche who said we always make one fewer car than our customers want They're, just to maintain the that The price status? inelasticity is I've never seen it in in, a company like this. Are you, and then I want to quickly turn back to Robert, but are you bullish on these names, even if their core U.S. market, and we've been talking about this story for a year now, if the luxury market in the U.S. is slowing? That's a big, I think that's a bigger concern than China, but I don't think that is a reason to, you know, I've turned more bullish on these stocks because they're down. Right. Louis Vuitton's down 25%. This is a big correction. It's a big multiple Well, and three change. months ago, we were writing celebratory stories about how it was the greatest company ever created. Exactly. And he had you know, the greatest executive exactly. in the world. And, you know, the, and all the, of a sudden. The game is, the, the way you make money is to buy good companies when they're down, not when they're at 52-week highs. Exactly. Robert, what would you add to that, especially what's happening in the U.S. front and the luxury space? No, Andrew's absolutely right. The big concern in the second quarter was the slowdown in the U.S. At least Asia had made up for that deficit. The question now is, does that last leg of the stool, Europe's weak, America's now weak, does the last leg, which was Asia, start to fall apart? I'd also echo his 
uh, point about Ferrari. You know, I interviewed the CEO of Ferrari three weeks ago, and Benedetto Vigna told me that demand in China has never been stronger. They've got wow. a new SUV that they're launching. That's a very great product in Europe. So, you know, Ferrari's doing well in China. We just don't know, like much of China, what's happening with the Chinese consumer until we get those third quarter results. All right. All the more reason to look forward to it. Thank you both. Really appreciate it, Robert Frank, today. And Andrew, thanks Thank for you. all your time. Andrew Sliman joining me from Morgan Stanley. Coming up, could inflation actually be coming down faster than expected? Walmart's latest move says the answer could be yes, but does the Fed agree? And what does the market expect for rate hikes from here? We'll break that down. Plus, Morgan Stanley also calling China's Apple concerns overdone, JP Morgan trimming their price target, and J. Danielle Shea calling it a great setup for the stock right now. She joins us for a very special Three Buys and a Bail Apple edition as we get ready for their big debut of the new iPhones next week. And as we head to break, here's a look at your markets, which are in the green except for the Russell, which is down slightly as we watch the regional banks struggling with red for the fifth week out of six. About a quarter percent gains across the board for the other major averages, 425 for the 10-year yield. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Is inflation actually subsiding more quickly than expected? Investors are starting to take note as just this week, Walmart wages have dropped compared with three months ago. Kroger says disinflation is occurring at a greater rate than originally anticipated. And recent Fed research finds that the frequency of price hikes in recent months has slowed sharply. Plus, the Fed's Beige Book report this week sounded notably more cautious on many regional economies. So how does this square with what we're hearing from officials themselves and what the market expects in terms of further rate hikes? Joining me now, Greg Daco is chief economist at EY Parthenon and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with us as well. Welcome to you both. Steve, let me just start with you and, and kind of this, this scene setter because the Fed officials we're hearing, if anything, are kind of hinting at maybe another hike in November. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite reading it that way, Kelly, and I'm interested in obviously your, your take on it. I have found Fed officials to be very much in the middle. I mean, mm. when John Williams says policy is in a good place, you got to take note of that. That's a phrase that Powell has used in the, play, in, in the past to sort of say, hey, we're OK where we are. Now, good place could mean we have to hike a little bit more. But the, and, and then you have Susan Collins say um, that we're at or near the peak rate. So I, I don't I find that, you know, the market has been struggling, but I feel like it's not struggling because of what the Fed's been saying. I feel like it's struggling because of a whole but 
bunch of other reasons. The Fed, I don't think, has been really hawkish in that in that sense. Yes, they're watching it. They're concerned. True. And, and, and I think just real quickly, it's, it's important to note some of this data that we've been all very excited about could be revised. And we had Waller on earlier this week and he said, you know what? We've been burned before. So that's why they're a little bit more circumspect about the progress. Greg, I think you're in the, the pause. We're, we're done camp. You know, either they are or they should be. And, you know, it was in response to that ISM services report that we saw. I think the November rate hike odds jumped to above 50 percent. Um, but Steve's right, Greg, that, you know, we haven't heard officials, I guess, being too, you know, hawkish or, or kind of running this policy of, well, we better err on the side of one more or else. Yeah, policymakers are being very careful as to what they say. I think that the mot du jour is really going to be proceed carefully going forward. Uh, they want to essentially um, highlight the possibility that there will be a pause, and we think that's going to be the, the baseline forecast. We think the Fed is done with its tightening cycle, but they don't want to essentially exclude the possibility of future rate hikes should either domestic demand prove stronger than expected or the labor market show less easing than expected. Those were the two conditions that Powell <clears throat> highlighted during his Jackson Hole speech. So I think it's going to be a nuanced message, but I think really given what the data is showing, given how inflation has been evolving, how the labor market has been evolving, I think the Fed is done with its rate hike cycle. How would you describe inflation evolving, Greg? I mentioned a couple of kind of anecdotal data points, but what do you think is really going on here? I think it's very interesting because there's this debate about the last mile of inflation, getting inflation down from 3% to 2% being the most difficult. I'm not necessarily sure that that's the case. We are seeing evidence that a number of inflationary measures, inflationary gauges are pointing towards faster disinflation than initially expected. You're seeing that the housing uh, disinflationary impulse is going to accelerate. That's going to put downward pressure on core inflation. You're seeing PPI inflation also on the downside. You're seeing import price inflation on the downside. You're seeing wage growth evidence also showing more signs to the downside. So I think inflation will continue to slow in the coming months. It will be a bumpy process. We know higher energy prices are going to disrupt uh, the momentum over the next couple of months. But as we move into 2024, we see slower economic activity and stronger supply. I think that's going to continue to put downer pressure on prices and businesses will be looking at inflation no longer as a one way bet, but really thinking hard about their pricing strategy in this environment. Absolutely. That's a whole other chat about earnings as well. Steve, what would you add? I, I would add that, um, look, the market has this binary idea about the Fed. They're either on or they're off. In other words, they're either hiking or cutting. The, the Fed wants to does not want that to be the set of choices that the market is in, is, is embracing. Um, and one of the reasons why they keep hope alive that there could be another rate hike is because they don't want the market to start pricing in cuts right away. They do not want to have the added stimulus of rates coming down. Now, I think that it would be a wonderful thing to happen in the sense that you might get a positive slope to the yield curve, which I think would help the economy in all sorts of ways. But that's one of the reasons they keep that idea alive is because they don't want you to think about cuts. If the Fed could get the market to trade with nuance, it would <laughs> welcome it, but it can't. <laughs> Greg, quick last word. I think Steve hit it on the dot. I mean, we are in an environment where the Fed does not want it to show its cards, essentially, and have investors price in rate cuts next year. Um, I think, you know, what Steve highlighted is very important. The Fed is going to be focused on real rates, how restrictive is monetary policy, given nominal <clears throat> rates and inflation. And as we move into the winter, there's going to be a greater discussion around policy recalibration focused on the real rates. 
I don't think rate cuts are coming before the end of the first quarter of next year, um, but that will be an increasing topic of discussion as we move into the end of the year. All right, we'll leave it there for now, gentlemen. Thanks, Greg Daco and our own Steve Leisman. Speaking of disinflation, rent growth is on the verge of going negative for the first time in decades. Diana Oleg brings us that story, Diana. Yeah, apartment rents have been cooling off sharply for several months, and they were still slightly higher year over year in August, but they may be on the verge of going down. And take a look, rents up just 0.28%, according to RealPage. Compare that to a year ago when rents were posting 11% annual growth. With the exception of a very brief drop during the COVID lockdowns, rents have not gone negative in well over a decade. And when they did, it was due to recession hitting demand. That is not the case now. Apartment occupancies nationally are at a pretty healthy 94%, which is right along historical norms. That's thanks to high mortgage rates combined with high home prices. The issue now is just a massive amount of supply. New units this year, at a 50-year high with over 460,000 units alone. We've talked about this a lot, over a million new units in the past three years. That's a record. And much of that supply is on the higher end. So renters have more options, landlords have less pricing power, and turnover is increasing. So while rents nationally have not gone negative quite yet, they have in several local markets, Austin, Phoenix, Vegas, Atlanta, and Jacksonville, seeing the biggest drops. Now, looking ahead, supply should remain high through next year, but new construction has actually dropped a lot this year due to financing and other challenges, so that may help put a floor on the rents. Kelly? And as we've discussed, good news for consumers may also be more pain for those exposed apartment rates. But for now, an important moment to highlight. Diana, thank you very much, our Diana Olick. Coming up, 19-year-old Coco Golf clinching a spot in her first ever U.S. Open final. But did AI see it coming? The key role artificial intelligence is playing in this year's U.S. Open is ahead. And if you're a charter cable customer, you'll have to watch that U.S. Open final on something other than your linear type TV as the dispute between ESPN's parent company and charter passes the one-week mark. Shares of both Disney and charter are down 4% since the blackout began. We're back right after this. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update at this hour. Former President Donald Trump is asking to move a Colorado state lawsuit up to federal court. Earlier this week, a group of six voters filed a lawsuit to remove Trump from the 2024 ballot because of his actions in the wake of the 2020 election. Trump's team argues that the case belongs in federal court because it centers on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. New Hampshire, Arizona, Michigan preparing similar challenges to Trump's eligibility to be on the presidential ballot. The United Nations released a report saying its goal of achieving gender equality by 2030 is impossible because of broad bias against women. The gender snapshot 2023 referenced inequality between men and women around the world in health, education, employment, and positions of power. The report concludes there is active resistance to equality efforts under investment, uh, which slow and under investment, which slows progress or even reverses gains already made. And the White House announced $26 million in new funding to improve aviation safety after a series of near-miss incidents. According to the White House, the money will be used to improve situational awareness on the runways, 
to expand the system that prevents incorrect landings and to increase runway alerts before approving clearances. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. Coming up, the energy ETF, the XLE, is on pace for its ninth daily gain in 10 and hitting its highest level since January. Those higher prices, though, could inflict pain on the restaurant industry. One analyst says this name, already under pressure this summer, down nearly 9%, would be most at risk. We will reveal it next on The Exchange. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's been a decent year for restaurant stocks, especially those catering to the higher end consumer. But can it last? Raymond James downgrading Dave & Buster's to outperform from strong buy and lowering its price target after comps came in weaker than expected last quarter. Ray J warning the second half could see more of the same, keeping the stock range bound and shares are down 12 percent this week. Kate Rogers joins me now with some of the other names that could also be at risk. Kate? Hey, Kelly, BTIG out with two notes over the last week, laying out some potential vulnerabilities in this space. The first list, key names to watch as student loan repayments resume in October. Peter Soleil saying the resumption will have a, quote, adverse impact on spending, but will likely remain a modest issue for the industry. 63% of BTIG's survey respondents said they dine out less or spend less when dining out once those loan repayments resumed. He calls out a few names that stand to be most impacted due to their higher price point and more education educated customer bases, Starbucks, Shake Shack, and Chipotle. Now, a second note calls out crude, breaking out while the consumer is looking stretched, pointing to some vulnerable charts in casual names, Cracker Barrel, Darden, Dine Brands, and Texas Roadhouse. But Wells Fargo has some bets in the fast food space in this environment, naming McDonald's and competitor Yum Brands, which it says are tracking ahead in terms of a forecasted slowdown on the street. And it's positive on those two names into a softer spending backdrop, despite some recent share pullback and some softness in the month of August. Now, year-to-date McDonald's is up 5%. Yum is lagging down just about 1%. The names, as you mentioned, that are best performing for the year so far are those stocks that are correlated with higher price points for consumers when it comes to meals. Shake Shack, Sweetgreen, Chipotle, those are some of the more vulnerable names that have been listed out there. But again, the best stock performers of the year so far, Kelly. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rogers. Let's talk a little bit more about not just those student loan payments posing a potential risk to spending. Gasoline prices are also sitting at levels not seen this time of year in more than a decade. The national average now more than $3.80 per gallon, according to AAA. But my next guest is actually bullish on the full-service restaurants like Bloomin' and Cheesecake Factory. For more, I'm joined by Andy Barish, equity analyst at Jeffrey's, covering the restaurant space. Andy, welcome. Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. I don't often see people really excited about full-service casual dining. You know, that was supposed to be a dinosaur, a relic of the past. And why is this a moment of opportunity for them, do you think? Yeah, a couple of things. I think um, the sales environment is normalizing, that's for sure. It's always hard to tell what, um, what the causes are. But, you know, the middle to upper middle income consumer, I think, is, is in, a, in a good position and will continue to be. And that's kind of matches up with the demographic of the typical casual dining customer. And that category also saw the most, I would say, structural improvement over the past, you know, three years and then coming out of the pandemic in terms of an incremental layer of sales from off-premise, much lower um, uh, amounts of capacity in the category via closures, Hmm. as well as some margin uh, improvements that were found uh, just given the challenges of the early days of the pandemic. 
Interesting. So, you know, it's kind of like as long as that consumer hangs in there, then this space in particular should be fine. And valuation, you think, also argues in their favor? Yeah, Kelly, I think these stocks um, have been battered around by the recession that supposedly has been happening the last 18 months or so, and it has clearly not happened. Um, there are some other recent pressures, traffic, as sales have normalized following a big period of revenge spending and socialization and getting out. Traffic has gone negative again, which is a little bit of a headwind for the stocks. Um, we've also heard um, on the weight loss drugs here recently in the last month or so what that may or may, you know, may, or may not do for demand um, over the medium to longer term. But needless to say, the valuations at the low end of historical ranges, most of these stocks are trading at five to seven times forward EV to EBITDA, hmm. are already reflecting kind of pretty significant slowdowns, whether or not that comes from the economy or some other factors. Interesting. Um, you know, I was struck that you said the uh, the Italian restaurants are doing especially well right now. Is Olive Garden back? You mentioned Maggiano's. What is it about this theme right now? Well, I think Olive Garden, uh, as a part of Darden, has always done well through the variety of ups and downs in the economy. It just has such great value scores, given the abundance of the food and, of course, uh, uh, all-you-can-eat salad and breadsticks. But the Italian category also overall, just during the pandemic, I think consumers um, really realized how easy it is for that food um, to go and how it travels so well. So a lot of the secondary players, obviously with Olive Garden being the largest by far, have seen some benefits and, and have sustained uh, some of that momentum, including Carabas as a part of Bloomin Brands, which uh, is one of our favorite names in the category as well. Interesting. So it travels for takeout a little bit better uh, than maybe tacos or, or or fried chicken or something like that. What part of the restaurant industry, it, it, there's plenty of headwinds, you know all of them. Um, what are the areas, you know, we, we haven't really talked about some of the plays Kate highlighted that are more sweet green and aimed at the high-end consumer. Why are you a little bit more cautious, if I could put it that way, on some of those segments? Um, I think... Part of it is those stocks have had big runs, um, sometimes, you know, for a variety of different reasons. Um, but overall, I mean, I think what those companies um, are showing is unit growth also. And I think that is an area where we, we actually are positive because I think the market, um, you know, is looking for growth still in areas, you know, outside of technology and AI and obviously all the things that have been you know, really hot until recently this year. So some of the growth um, names have performed well, uh, like the Shake Shacks and the Sweet Greens of the world. Um, we happen to, um, you know, like some others in the category. Kava was a recent IPO we were part of. Uh, Dutch Bros, which uh, we just did a follow-on offering for to uh, help clean up the balance sheet is another one. And First Watch um, in the breakfast brunch category um, is a good unit growth, uh, growth story in small caps. So we do continue to like uh, some of those um, small cap growth names, um, just um, have been neutral on the ones that, um, you know, that you put up earlier. All right, for their, uh, their run-up uh, in particular. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's good to check in with you. Thanks, have a good weekend. You too, Andy Barish from Jefferies. Up next, move over McEnroe. AI is playing a huge role in this year's U.S. Open. We'll dig into how artificial intelligence is doing everything from predicting winners to calling shots and providing match commentary next. 
And just moments ago, Square announcing on Twitter or X that its payment processing services have been restored after an outage that started around 3 p.m. Eastern time yesterday. Its shares are still down 5% today and more than 8% this week. We're back after this. AI might not be able to understand love, except when it comes to tennis scores. The new technology has been a big part of this year's U.S. Open, providing commentary, insight, and even projecting winners. Julia Borson is here with the details, and I tip my hat. That was a, gr- that was a good play on words, Julia. <laughs> Well, Kelly, if you've been watching the U.S. Open this week, you have been benefiting from artificial intelligence. The USTA has been using IBM's Watson AI to provide commentary on what's happening in every single match. Pagula wins the point with a forehand winner. It is now even in this game. Deuce. We're really able to create a highlight for every single match, have that voice added to it, and out in the matter of minutes. Again, that was hours in past years. So we've gone from just automated clipping to now adding commentary to it. Then with computer vision, the goal and the North Star is really they'll be able to even enrich that commentary with more color commentary and really enrich our highlights packages as they come out. As the USTA works to launch computer vision, so generative AI commentary can really include color in all the nuances of every match. It's also working with IBM on AI-generated translation of commentary into every possible language. IBM's AI even forecasts who's most likely to win a match and predicted the recent Alcaraz upset at Wimbledon, although it isn't always right. Now, this is all part of a broader trend of VC funding pouring into sports tech, with 53 deals in the AI sports-related companies alone last year. That is an all-time high in terms of the number of deals. Now, one startup in this space is called AI Scout. It's partnered with Major League Soccer to enable anyone to try out and be evaluated by the league. Another called Status Pro uses AI to improve the realism of its virtual reality training tools for NFL players. They also have a game so anyone can see how the NFL trains. We're going to start to see more about how coaches are using AI to customize training programs or even to isolate which tapes need to be reviewed all in the, in the effort for efficiency. But at the end of the day, all of this data is still coaching or reporting on humans, humans who are still occasionally unpredictable. Kelly? Uh, real quickly, Julia, where do you think investor is this really kind of something that goes back to an investable angle? Hey, there's one company that's kind of doing cool things here, or is it just there's a million different people doing a million different things that are almost undiscernible at this point? Well, I think what's so interesting is to see a big company like IBM have its large language models, its generative AI tools be applicable in the world of sports. And the idea that you may be watching a match and not even realize that it's an AI-generated commentary doing um, doing the voiceover. So I think we are seeing some of these big companies, and we'll see more of it, whether it's the IBM Watson or we'll see um, Microsoft and their big investment in OpenAI. We'll see these tools being leveraged broadly across the sports ecosystem, and then we'll see some of these smart startups, which are more niche and more focused, um, being deployed in, in more specific use cases, such as in specific training of athletes or giving coaches different tools. But I think everything is being leveraged now. AI makes you more efficient and everyone's looking for an edge. Amazing. Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borston. Still ahead, Apple shares having their second worst week this year, and it's been even worse for some of their suppliers. Broadcom, Taiwan Semi, Qualcomm also down anywhere between one and a half and nearly eight percent. But our trader, 
Twitter sees a strong buy setup in at least one of these names, while another looks like it could be on the brink of a breakdown. We will get her three buys and a bail next. Speaking of the chips, check out shares of Intel, lower today and on pace to snap what's actually been a nine-day winning streak. Shares are up more than 16% over the past two weeks and down just half a percent at the moment. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Apple getting hit on all sides this week between the EU gatekeepers list, China's iPhone ban for government officials and growing competition from Huawei. And the company's suppliers are under pressure as well, all right before its big iPhone launch event next week, which is also typically a bearish time for Apple shares. So what should you do with all of these stocks here? It's time for three buys and a bail Apple edition. Joining me now is Danielle Shea, VP of options at Simpler Trading. Danielle, great to have you here. Welcome. Let's start with Apple itself, which you say, drumroll please, I'm kind of shocked to hear this is a buy. It's lost $200 billion in market cap. We've been talking about how the charts through the 50. I think it's near the 100 day. Um, What makes you look at this and think maybe a la Morgan Stanley, you know, more bark than bite here and, uh, and you'd be a buyer? So, Kelly, when you look at Apple, it pulled back after earnings. This is a very typical move for a stock like this post-earnings. Admittedly, it hasn't looked great, and the China news wasn't amazing at all. But when you look at the reaction, I think it's overblown. Specifically, if you look at the way that it's trading today, we have a break up above yesterday's high. We also have a lot of high open interest in the options market up at 185. So I'm targeting 185 going into next week um, in the options market. And additionally, I'm going to hold on to my long-term Apple shares. All right. So there you have it. And that kind of gives us the broader backdrop against which we'll talk about some of these other names. So let's dig into the suppliers like Broadcom, only down about 2% on the week, but they also posted quarterly earnings. A miss on cash flow and guidance. It's deal with VMware is reportedly under review by China. This one's a buy for you, though. So, Kelly, when you look at Broadcom, I'll say that I own the shares here. I'm not going to be buying more after the huge move that it's had this year, but it's an amazing trading vehicle. It's, again, normal for a stock like this to pull back post-earnings, and what I'm seeing is that it's in consolidation mode. I love identifying really strong stocks that have relative strength in consolidation mode because I like to trade them up to the next level. So I'm targeting $900 a share on Broadcom, and I'm definitely going to be holding my long-term shares. All right, up 53% so far this year. What about Taiwan Semi? It's been a bit of a tougher name, TSMC. That chipmaker's been on a steady downtrend the last three months, about 10% lower. They released monthly sales figures for August today, showing a 13% drop year over year. But you'd stick with the stock here. It's a buy for you. So I am holding Taiwan Semiconductor. Yes, it's had a lot of issues um, with the strife between the U.S. and China. But if you look past the short-term timeframes and you look at the longer-term chart, specifically look at the monthly chart, you can see that it has a strong trend. It has a cup and handle pattern. It's pulled back. It's holding on to support. As long as it's up above 75 about $80 a share, I'm going to continue to hold and buy this one. I'm looking at upside targets into resistance between 120 and 140. Admittedly, those are going to be some critical resistance zones that it may have trouble getting through. But ultimately, I would like to see that monthly chart pattern play out and trade up to new all-time highs. All right, so let's hit your bail. Uh, It's Qualcomm, one of Apple's biggest vendors responsible for the modem chip. Qualcomm shares down about 8% just this week, 10% on the month. Um, And this one, you're warning people to watch the downtrend here, right? 
Yes, Kelly. So, you know, it's hard for me because I do like Qualcomm and I own Qualcomm as well. But the problem is, is if you look at the longer term chart patterns, these are breaking down. It's one thing when you have a short term pattern that's breaking down and, you know, intermediate stripe. But at the long, on the long-term patterns in Qualcomm, on the monthly and weekly charts, you can see that you've broken your upside trend. Specifically on this stock, if it breaks through about $100 a share, I think it'll flush pretty quickly down into 85 to 90. So I'm eyeing this one very carefully, and if it breaks through $100, that is going to be my bail point. I'm going to ask you about another bail because it has nothing to, well, it kind of has something to do with what we've been talking about, but Starbucks is another name that has China exposure, a stock that has not been doing well lately, and I just wanted to throw out there to people, it's one you're watching also to the downside, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So when it comes to Starbucks, um, you know, we've seen companies in this space that have started to roll over. And, you know, some of them are very strong companies like Hershey's, for example, is rolling and McDonald's is rolling. But Starbucks in particular has had a variety of political issues for the past several years. And this has impacted it on a longer term basis. You can see that the long term chart patterns are breaking down on this stock and it's hanging on a ledge. So I like this one uh, to buy some in the money puts for the next couple months because I think that this one is going to fall off the ledge and break down. Wow. Pumpkin spice fans, you know, it, it, that little influx is not the story here. I mean, the stock was, I think, 125 a couple of years ago. Okay, Danielle, before we go, we got some news on the ARM IPO that it's five times oversubscribed, according to the Financial Times. Do you need to see the pricing on this before you take a view one way or the other? I mean, they're also part of the Apple ecosystem, and Apple, I believe, is, is going to be a, a, an investor in the IPO. Certainly, I would need to see the pricing on this, but also I would caution investors that IPOs in this market condition in particular are going to be very risky bets because, for a time frame, you know, throughout 2019, 2020, 2021, IPOs were amazing trading vehicles. But what we've seen since then is, well, a lot of these IPOs have imploded. So I would caution investors towards yeah. buying any IPO in this market environment. Wow. That is our headline for the day. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Danielle Shea, she does it all. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.